Is it, my precious? I am Mr. Bilbo Baggins. I've lost my dwarves, my wizard, and my way. Perhaps we sit here and chats with it. A bitsy, my precious. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. I'm Ian Porter, and Ian Porter means me. <laughs> I'm his dad. He's my son. And I don't know. I don't know that I've made him watch a movie. I made him watch what in my youth was a TV special. It had that feeling. It's a it's a, a little bit on the short side for a feature film. It's not a TV series, but it was very important. Or rather, it it represents something very important. I have to admit that we're we're here to talk about this TV special, but it's also a placeholder for something else that was incredibly important to me at exactly that time. Oh, is this the is this the start of a longer journey of of a type of media or something? It is indeed. We are talking about The Hobbit. Specifically, we're talking about the 1977 Rankin-Bass TV adaptation of The Hobbit. Wait, Rankin-Bass? I'm so used to that name, but not in this scenario. You're probably more accustomed to seeing them do holiday-themed stop-motion puppetry animation. Yes. But they also produced and directed drawn animation, cell animation. And usually, when they did this, the the actual art was done by a company called Topcraft. See, all of this feels like... I feel like you're speaking old names of something ancient (laughs) that I have found in my digs through internet. The lore from before we began recording our history. (laughs) <laughs> at least in before the ancient we're... ages, before the age of men. Ah, uh, yes, exactly. And the reason I say this is a placeholder is that J.R.R. Tolkien's stuff was was kind of important to me in like that junior high era. To put it very, very mildly, no, <laughs> you. The, so, man, the man who gave me his old set of Dungeons and Dragons dice as a gift <laughs> one year alongside miniatures that you'd yet to paint, and I've started to now. And I read The Hobbit in like fifth grade or so and almost immediately tried to start reading The Lord of the Rings. I think it took me until eighth grade or so to finish it. But if we... This podcast is about media that had an influence on me when I was a kid and what you think of it today. We could very well spend a year just on J.R.R. Tolkien in terms of the depth of the material, but also the impact that it had on me. I don't think we want to do that. Please, right now, promise me in front of all of these listeners that you're not going to make me read the Silmarillion. Am I going to make you read the Silmarillion? No. Am I going to continue to hound you to read it one of these days? Absolutely. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's how big and full of weirdness? Yes, that's the point. It's big and it's full of weirdness. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we're not going to turn this into a Lord of the Rings podcast for the next year, year and a half. Unless you give us enough on Patreon to convince us. <laughs> yes, we can be persuaded. But instead, we're going to talk about Tolkien's stuff using this TV adaptation of The Hobbit as a, a, an introduction to it. Because in addition to having read The Hobbit and being in the, in the middle of reading The Lord of the Rings when this came out, it was the fact that this was on TV made this accessible to a lot of my friends who hadn't read any of the books yet. So suddenly it was enough in popular culture that it was something I could talk to other people about, something we could have fun with. So it changed. It was the first, for me at least, it seemed like the secret thing that I was so into suddenly became shareable with the rest of the world. I completely understand that in the wildest of ways, because the timing for when this did that for you lines up very well with how the Lord of the Rings live-action movies did that for me. Oh, I can see that working that way. Absolutely. So I definitely... Uh, I'm I'm giving you a fun hard time. I'm I'm joking around here. I was very excited when you told us what we were doing now for this episode because I've got my own little history with Tolkien and popular culture and adaptation in this sense, and so I was excited to be able to to talk with you about this and tell our listeners and talk with our listeners about it as well. So absolutely. And because of what this tv special did to make this more accessible to make it something i could share with my friends i realized especially having watched it again i was consciously knowingly intentionally overlooking any flaws that it might have because i wanted it to be so good because i wanted it to make a good impression i wanted my friends to enjoy it i wanted to enjoy it i wanted it to convince them to read the books and it's more of a mixed bag then I realize. And I don't think that's just me coming back to it as an adult decades later. I think I probably recognized a lot of its flaws. I just didn't want to pay attention to them when I re watched this on, on TV in 1977. Oh, I completely get it. I'm going to, I'm going to do something I usually don't, which is also say how good or ask something here. How good was the video transfer when you got to watch this on broadcast TV on your TV set at that time compared to our HD TV and our DVD rip of it. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, this is, um, uh, an iTunes copy that we downloaded oh, here and, and it's so, but it's still adapted from that standard definition TV broadcast quality animation. Oh, and that company I mentioned Topcraft. Yeah. Um, that did not stay in business very long, but a number of its key people, including a guy named Miyazaki, went on to, to create Studio Ghibli. I'm sorry, I... And it was Topcraft who did uh, Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind. It was a pre-Ghibli movie. Why does this look so wobbly? <laughs> Yeah, they have, the art style is weird. I yes. when you think Rankin Bass, you think these smooth, rounded surfaces of their puppetry. And then there's this thing. This, 
the fact that you're telling me that this is Ghibli, uh, the future Ghibli members and Miyazaki and such is bewildering to me. You tell me this is Rankin Bass, it makes sense. There's something about the way the characters are blocked moving from place to place that is very much the same sort of way Rankin Brass would move a character puppet from one side to the other. There's something about the way the line work moves in this animated style that reminds me of the frame rate moving way characters would slide around in the puppetry stuff. There's something about this that that yells the same thing. And I'm not just talking about the fact that they did give this book to a group of people who are known for creating oddly chipper little adventure stories punctuated by a bothersome number of vaguely catchy songs. <laughs> and so they did kind of... It feels like this story was pressed through the mesh uh, sieve of Rankin-Bass styling in terms of what comes out the other side. There's little bits filtered out to make this fine powder of a Rankin-Bass production. But it's just... Mm. I think you're right. There, there is something about the the what looks like low frame rate cell animation. The movement and the blocking, it all does seem similar in in ways to their stop motion animation and yet some of the the art style and the line the line drawings and the the backgrounds they're just weirdly intensely detailed it's like you gave a disturbed maniac a uniball micro and told him to draw a fantasy world uh, there's a lot of stuff modernly which i've seen that in that is uh programs designed to do in betweening so uh, an artist can just draw the keyframes, and the in-between frames will be AI-generated by moving from one point to the next. And early versions of this were known for making wildly weird line associations and strange choices in terms of how it moves around from piece to piece. This feels like it used one of those programs decades before they existed. <laughs> Because it's like every still shot is lovely. All the environment shots are great. All of the characters going from A to B gets weird. That, that's interesting. Some of the backgrounds, I, I agree, are beautiful. And yet some of them, there's so much cramped little detail it looks neurotic to. <laughs> I, I don't know. They, some of the, they, they make me nervous. And I don't mean just the ones that should make me nervous, like the... The forest full of giant spiders. I'm talking about the exterior of Bilbo's Hobbit Hole. It's like there's too much happening just in any given square inch of TV screen. Bilbo's kitchen in the early scenes of this movie somehow has indie horror game. I don't have a lot, <laughs> but assets from the Unity store vibes. It's got something like that. <laughs> Like, you're going to turn around and there's... I mean, he does actually get jump-scared by a wizard, so it kind of fits. So let's talk, then, about that wizard and about the characters. We've mentioned Bilbo. Uh, Bilbo is voiced by uh, Orson Bean. And I think it's a pretty good depiction of Bilbo as a character. He's He is a homebody. He's resistant to adventuring. But once it kind of catches his something inside him, he agrees to go along and you can understand and they make that 
that transition believable that, that happens at the very beginning of the story. Yeah. Part of me with the way they kind of squ- they, they keep some scenes in and they squish other scenes to get the story plot to fit in this film space. There were things that made me say, oh, they're making him whiny. It's like, no, they're actually just getting rid of a few of those moments of rest you have between the amount of whining he does in the book. <laughs> it's like he actually kind of is early on this whiny and this uncertain. And he does get that level of overconfident later on. They just you, you're getting all of it in a in a, a condensed dose. Yeah, and they did have to trim some things to to bring this down from a, a book into even a kids book into a TV special. But there were some things I was disappointed that they they changed. This version of Gandalf, the powerful wizard, who thanks to the fact that he's got a long flowing beard and flowing robes with this 70s animation style done with the extra wiggly weirdness we were talking about, Gandalf comes across like he has just uh, stolen a pot of coffee from the Waffle House and drank it all straight from the carafe. <laughs> He's got this manicness to him. He's got this arm-waving manic energy to him. And so the fact that he kind of comes and goes, pops up places, does things, I think threatens more people <laughs> than I'd expect. He- there is something very Florida man about this Gandalf in an ac- in an accurate way, and I appreciate that. But definitely, him like popping up, it's like it's morning. Is kind of accurate to this version. He did seem to have that kind of trippy '70s vibe to him, and it's not a shock because it's the same kind of character just a few years earlier. But there's a lot in this Gandalf that reminds me of Merlin from Borman's. Uh, Excalibur. Oh, absolutely. He's off doing his own thing. He's happy to teach you, but he's not really going to pay much attention to any complaints. I I don't know if he's going over to talk to Saruman in in a tower, or uh, if he is going off to poker night with Merlin from Excalibur, (laughs) because I could imagine that very clearly. And the voice for Gandalf is John Huston, actor and director. And he's also the the narrator for the the entire thing, as if Gandalf is relating the story sometime later, even af, even for the parts that Gandalf wasn't present for. The, of all the narrators you can get away with knowing the things he wasn't there for, this works. And they they do compress certain things in the story, but it is for its running time, it is impressively complete in terms of the story they have the encounter with the trolls they have the encounters with goblins oh they have the goblin caves and the great goblin and that brings up probably for me the most memorable song of the bunch there's a lot of music in this clearly as rankin bass often want to do they wanted to sell a an art book and uh and a record and everything else so there's a lot of music in this, including lots of interminable folk music about the greatest adventure. But the song about Down Down to Goblin Town, <laughs> that was a really popular song among me and my friends in school. That was weirdly funky. Oh, my God. 
So well, Goblin Town is well, Funky Town. Absolutely. It's like Goblin Town, it's like you add a bit of you add a bit of extra synth over that and boost the bass and I'm I swear it's like a a a, a cyberpunk club track. You we can... were singing that at recess for a few weeks after this aired. Okay, that's got to just be terrifying for your teachers, though. A bunch <laughs> of kids jumping around, singing about going down to Goblin Town. I'm watching that at recess and going, oh no, they're coming back in after this. Yeah, I can imagine the nuns might have been kind of troubled by that. <laughs> now that I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Probably just added to the list. Oh, and the goblin singing voice, that was Thurl Ravenscroft. Uh-huh. In a, in unmistakable voice. Pretty awesome. And they do talk about music and magic being linked. And I think that was also to promote the idea of music being important to this and, and the, the dwarves song being part of what changes Bilbo's heart. But also they do some interesting things where they, they fall into rhyme, not necessarily rhyme from the original book, but whenever they're talking about lore and history and things that are supposed to be more important than the mere words that describe them, Gandalf's narration or his description of an explanation of things to Bilbo falls into poetry. And I like that as an, as a, as an effect, it kind of gets your attention and suddenly it's, we're not just having a conversation. I am informing you of something important. That's why it sounds this way. To make something feel magical. That is a wonderful way to do it. And to make something based on words, based on a book to feel magical that is a cool way to do it in another medium where it's words having a power here, language having this aspect to it. The way you describe that past is, has this tied into it like it's something fundamental in a world where all of it is word-based in that sense. In, if, it, if it was doing that in something that was oh, completely original for film, it might not have the same impact to me, but I'm with you on that. Yeah, that is baked into everything Tolkien wrote, including The Hobbit. That seeing it, it was kind of a way of adapting certain things from the book into a TV medium. I like that. Oh, yeah. The dwarves, a lot of the dwarves were kind of indistinguishable. And, you know, I thought that, that, that Thorin was enough of a character, did what he was supposed to, becomes much more of a character in the last act of the, the story. Oh, yes. And that was uh, uh, Hans Conried, another unmistakable animation and voiceover guy doing uh, a Thorin. He's one of these voices. Sometimes I find Conried's voice a little bit distracting because it is so distinctive. But after a while, you just, oh, that's what Thorin sounds like. There was something about the way they kind of over-exaggerated some of the dwarves that I actually found a little creepy with this the way that they were drawing stuff it's like some of the ways the noses and the the eyes were accentuated to make them all look different it gave me just uncomfortable vibes when introducing them all or when they're popping in and out of places it was almost as if there was a bit of tension in terms of how they wanted to depict them in terms of an art style there were in some ways they were snow white and the seven dwarves style dwarves and in other ways, it's, it's as if another one of the animation team wanted to make them super detail as if they were illustrating a Wagner opera. And yeah, those didn't mesh terribly well. There is a YouTube artist who draws in things that are similar to this style, uh, Felix Colgrave, 
And it's just like, I'm having flashbacks to some of his work because it's inspired by this kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, I see where that's coming from. Ah. When it's like, oh, that man's face is 90% nose. And that's a (laughs) distinguishing feature now, but it's also awkward and kind of unsettling. And one of the art style inspirations that they it was referenced in this uh, in this TV show was Arthur Rackham, who did a lot of very precise, intense line work illustrations, and often did illustrate folklore and Wagnerian operas and things like that. So I, I can see where some of that came. If they had just picked one style and 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 leaned into it, it wouldn't have seemed as disjointed as the fact that there appeared to be competing styles going on at the same time. Yeah. There's something about when you've got two things that are drawn in completely separate styles or styles that are not close enough to feel cohesive. If like you've got two characters standing next to each other and they don't match, it can just throw you. Well, I didn't notice that too much here. There was a little bit, especially when you had like like characters from different groups you have the dwarves standing next to the wood elves and one of them gets more detail than the other and you get some stuff there that got me yeah that's a good point the wood elves what's going on with the wood elves the way they're depicted on this they're these spindly hunched over green skinned really creepy creatures are the wood elves everyone who did not get a return casting call for Gollum. Instead, got offered the part of Wood Elf and were given a discount Korok costume. I'm just imagining a version now of, of uh, the Fellowship of the Ring where Legolas is one of those Wood Elves. Oh. That would be very different. Yeah. Yeah, there was something a little too koboldy about them. Yes. Yeah, they seemed more have to have more in common with the goblins than with men or dwarves. Yeah. Do we hear the elves sing? I don't know. Well, we hear, I don't know if we hear elves sing in this. I don't think so. But we do meet Elrond. Yes. And Elrond is pretty cool. I'm down with Elrond in this. He's got this halo, this crown of floating stars around his head. He is appropriately weird and mystical for the kind of elves I always imagined in Tolkien. Yes. He also gave me two weird vibes I have noted he feels like he comes with the Grand Hall playset. Oh, absolutely. Like, because the environment and him are so c- closely tied together there. Also, I got very odd Transformers vibes based on, like, the color palette there. Something about the deep blues and the sparkliness. I'm just like, this feels like blue paint job and chrome. I'm getting, I'm getting some distinct uh, Optimus Prime vibes from this version of Elrond for some reason. <laughs> Now, you mentioned Gollum. What do you think of the the depiction of Gollum in this? You mean frog Gollum? (laughs) Very, very frog-like. Very frog-like. Frog-shaped head, giant eyes. He he actually made me think of Splatoon characters in that sense. He's got that kind of always wet look. Like, I feel like I'm supposed to go over and buy hats from him. (laughs) But it's... It's a different take on Gollum than I've usually seen, but it is one that fits with the description of creepy weird thing that tells you riddles that lives in dank wet caves. It's like that works. It's just not the un- the usual 
emaciated kind of guy you usually get. And Brother Theodore, the actor and comedian who did the voice for Gollum, I think captured a pretty good character in here. He made it believable, but made it creepy. Yeah, there was... He put a, he put a he put a very good amount of uh, threaten you with a pocket knife into <laughs> this game of who wants to be a millionaire and more than you really need in the Hobbit. He added a certain element of of um, of sympathy to Gollum. Yeah, where you could you could kind of you kind of feel for this creature. Like you look what like you it? where did you, it come from? You look like you need a hug. I'm very, very concerned about the I, the prospect of giving you a hug based on the way you're moving, threatening <laughs> me, and seem to be damp. But you look like you need it, and maybe I will give it to you. And there were a lot of other good set pieces that, at the time, especially when I first watched this, they were everything I wanted in terms of a cool animated illustration of what I remember from the book. The eagles, they were pretty awesome. The fight against the spiders and the naming of Sting, those were cool. I really that, liked those. That was very good. The The way you draw, like, twinkly, sparkly effects in this era of animation works remarkably well for an invisible guy wielding a glowing sword. It actually fits really well there. I want to know your opinion of the dragon smog, though. This was an interesting take on smog. Kitty! (laughs) Yes, it was a weirdly feline. I've got that in my notes. Strangely feline-looking dragon with the the shape of the head and the ears. and The the, the, mutton shots. Yes. And also, Richard Boone's voice performance... It made Smog a very rough and gruff and no patience for you. Not a someone who has airs of being a refined king under the mountain now that he's got all the gold. It's just, you know, I am bigger than anybody I've ever met. and I've got no patience for you. And, and, and it's only because I'm so bored that I haven't squashed you yet. There's a little less regal dragon fire and a little bit more get off my lawn in this version of Smog. Yes, he's more a grumpy old man yeah. than a proud dragon. The idea of a dragon gathering a horde and sitting there to live for either forever or I will die here and I'm okay with that, but I'll die well after all of you kind of fits this one. It's like, oh yeah. And the way that he loses his patience with Bilbo as Bilbo begins to confuse him and gives him all of his titles. Uh, give, uh, um, Bilbo you know, recites titles based on everything he's done over the course of this trip. It isn't that the the dragon is particularly upset or troubled. He's just annoyed, and now he's getting bored with this whatever this is. Oh, the um, the doorway is another thing that I thought was just a perfectly depicted illustration and, and and set piece for what i liked in in the book the the thrush with the thrush knocks in the last light of the setting sun and all of this it was just magical enough it was just concrete enough i liked that scene at the top of the lonely mountain when they had to get into the back door oh yeah it was well done 
and I, I do like the use the key kind of like, oh, yeah, we're all too distracted by how awesome that was just now. <laughs> yes. We almost miss our chance to actually use the door. They did that. They did that very, very well. And they did compress the story somewhat. They did rush through some parts of it because they wanted to leave a lot of time at the end for the Battle of the Five Armies. They did. Well, <laughs> or I, they, they do show us the death of Smog and his destruction of, of Lake Town I, and Bard shooting the Black Arrow to, into the one weak spot. That was I, all done well. I love this version of Bard. I don't know why. He comes across like a classic DC comic book character. <laughs> it's like, hi, I will shoot you with this Black Arrow that my father left here. It's like... There's also something a little speed racery about him. It's like, allow me <laughs> yes. to explain thing twice, because a thing must be explained twice as I fire arrow at you, which will pierce you because it is arrow. While you are taking five minutes to talk to the arrow about itself, the dragon is still burning your city, dude. Exactly. <laughs> but and he and he's like always depicted at like a very high or a very low angle at first. So everything about him is like perspective shifted like bard is in trapezoid mode for like the first five times we meet him it's wild but they do after that they have plenty of time for the battle of the five armies and they do a fun job of that as more armies show up and as alliances change and suddenly the people who are about to kill each other are on the same side now that orcs are here Oh, and it's interesting that in addition to being weird and spindly and green the wood elves are apparently austrian yes they are they they are aggressively Austrian accented. I mean, their king is played by Otto Preminger, so no surprise there. But it's a weird choice, yeah, to make the the Wood Elves Austrian. It's not one that I'm bothered by, though. It's one that I would try to pull off in a D and D session at some <laughs> point. It's just one more thing that makes them different from all the other creatures we have encountered before. Yeah, and it is nice to have like. Because everyone sounds just a little different, the dwarves are a little druff, gruffer, and the the wood elves sound one way, and the orcs sound another, and such. You can almost kind of tell who's talking before the animation moves to show them. Yes, and and absolutely, whenever Thorin is speaking, you can hear that that Hans Conried voice come through. Oh yeah, and he talks a lot more in uh, in that last part of the, the the story where they've gotten rid of uh, or they've they've driven smog out of the uh, the mountain and bard killed him while the dragon was in the process of burning the city and then thorin wants to keep all the gold for himself and that leads to the battle and it starts out with essentially these 13 dwarves and a hobbit thinking they can hold off armies and they they definitely turn this into a pretty straightforward anti-war message. Yes. As, you know, it starts out with the, the, the people who are all in favor of war are saying that the, the people who don't want a war are, are, are lack any understanding and they're cowards. And then by the end of it, they're making very explicit statements. You know, you are right. War is terrible. Oh, heavily anti-war. Yeah. Which, you know, not surprising you know, just a few years after uh, Vietnam ended. For America. Oh. The, the Vietnam conflict ended. Oh, yeah. Not surprising. Not fitting in the story. It's it's heavily leaned on, but it's not wedged in there 
without context or without, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's nothing that isn't in the original story they exactly just change what they choose to emphasize really and they spend a lot of time counting the number of armies and <laughs> pushing the escalation aspect and following through with the getting knocked out and waking up later and finding out all the aftermath mm-hmm. which also cuts down on how much battle you have to animate yes and that i'm sure saves a lot of time and money yes but even with that what they did animate was was well done they, oh yeah they did good crowd scenes good army scenes we get to see the eagles again and that's all that's impressive i like how they were done i find myself now thinking about the eagles in the context of the animation studio that did nausicaa oh yes now there's yeah there's there's things that you can learn about animating flight oh yes lots of lots of flight animation and then of course bilbo finds his way back home after all the excitement mm-hmm. with uh with less than his one fourteenth share, but with gold to make him comfortably well off for the rest of his life back at uh, Hobbiton. Yeah, they do. They depict the amount that they show him bringing back does look smaller than I expected, but they kind of wave that away. I couldn't tell. Yeah, I guess they wanted to emphasize the fact that while Bilbo was being compensated, he wasn't being greedy and wasn't insisting on getting one fourteenth of this just unimaginable hoard. Yeah. And as he was putting it, well, this is all my pony could carry. How was how was I going to get the rest of it home? And uh, there's a nice little extra push about the like, oh, and I'll keep this ring as a as a thing on my mantle, kind of. Yes. Yeah, they do have that uh, to be continued kind of feel at the end of it there. Oh yeah. Oh, and one thing, other thing I have to mention about the art style, this is something I bet that they would leave out if they were making this today as a, a kid's TV special. But I've got a, a note from the early, the first times we see Bilbo. Bilbo has a weirdly complicated vape rig. He's got this <laughs> bizarre, that's what it looked like, because it was this giant pipe that led, went to the floor and had this, not just a pipe bowl at the end, but this complicated carvings. It was like... What is he vaping? Yeah, he kind of needs like a pair of little wheels at the at the <laughs> curve of his pipe because it's going to roll on the ground. There's something pipe meets cane like about the way this is built. And it's one of those little details that made me think this there's something that makes me just nervous about the line work in especially in Hobbiton. Yeah. Well, I think we might be coming up towards our final questions. I think we which are, are pretty weird ones for this. Yeah. It is a TV show, but it's it's uh, really it's, think it's, of it as a movie. It's, it's, it's a movie. It's a special. Yeah. Screen or no screen? I'm gonna say screen. Yeah, I was torn, but I I come down on screen as well. It's it's worth seeing. The fact that it is so music heavy at certain parts, much to its own. I mean, the it is it is earworm, but not memorable. It's kind of grating at times, but that just gives you a moment to go get a drink. It's it's a screen. It's not a a rapt attention kind of screen, but it's a screen in my opinion. I agree. It's it's a good adaptation of a kids book. Mm-hmm. If you go in with the right expectations, uh, yeah, it's 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 very it's serviceable and it's fun to watch. Now pop this up on a projector as everyone's getting ready, having some food before board game night. This works quite sure. well. But our other question is more complicated. Revive, yeah. reboot, or rest in peace? How are we going to answer that when it comes to this? Well, well, it's an adaptation already, so let's acknowledge that. It's already had various other adaptations. The three-part 
movie series version of the the Hobbit live action. Uh, there's multiple other versions everywhere else. But I guess we're talking about this version specific. I guess so. So I, I, yeah, I guess reboot would just be another adaptation of The Hobbit. And we've had those, and you can have opinions about how good they were or not. So you couldn't really reboot the Rankin-Bass Hobbit, could you? No. But what about a revival? What would that look like? Would that be the Rankin-Bass version of The Lord of the Rings? Or would it be, oh, heaven help us, the Rankin-Bass version of Rings of Power? Oh, goodness. Please, no. Please. <laughs> hmm. I've got an interesting way to take this. I don't think I want a revive in terms of, like, the Rankin-Bass Lord of the Rings. I think I'm saying rest in peace on that. But I will note... As odd and off-putting at times and everything else, the weirdness we're talking about this art style, that's something. There's something to the way this presents itself. I wouldn't mind someone taking this Rankin-Bass style and doing other things with it. Be that other fantasy artwork, other fantasy stories. Give me line work like this doing other tales. I'm, I'm just trying to imagine like, what does this art style look like when it's like draw a cyberpunk world with this art style? Take this as a diff as this kind of line work and such that is impacting us so much and making this notable to us and use it on other things. I think there's something there. So it's a, a rest in peace with a, but mind this for some concepts is I guess where I'm leaving it. Yeah, I, I think I would, would say yeah, let this rest in peace. But I do have to point out, this is not the last of Rankin-Bass dealing with Tolkien. What? What'd they do? In 1980, there was another TV special, the Rankin-Bass adaptation of The Return of the King. Wait a minute. <laughs> That's what I said in 1980. You skipped a part. There was something of a free-for-all over the rights to The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit uh, at this time. There were parts of the Tolkien estate claiming copyright control over it and others asserting that it was in, a, in the public domain. And I think that's the position Rankin-Bass were taking. And they decided, and they say that they decided this almost as they were finishing The Hobbit, they decided to make a, a musical adaptation of The Return of the King. So it's most of the story of the final volume, which is the final two books of The Lord of the Rings, as a Rankin-Bass musical. I'm... I... I <laughs> we might have to watch that at some point. Why? <laughs> because uh, it exists. Good point. I'm also just looking at the fact that they went from that in animation straight to the last unicorn two years later in animation, <laughs> which is one of those things I've heard about. It's like, what? Okay. So Rankin-Bass were not content to let this rest in peace. They weren't going to reboot it. 
but but gosh, they they revived it by continuing to uh, to animate hobbits and other things from Middle Earth. Okay, well you know this is even more amazing. I'm looking at the Rankin Bass listing here. They go from musical Return of the King the next year, a live action samurai film called Bushido Blade with James Earl Jones in it. And the <laughs> year after that is The Last Unicorn. I had no idea that Bushido Blade was Rankin Bass. Yes. That that puts a whole new perspective on that. That's just some wildly <laughs> fun track record. Okay. Thank, thank you. So you can, you can see how it was as if by paying so much attention to Tolkien stuff and reading and rereading The Hobbit and delving into The Lord of the Rings as intensely as I did over the course of several years, it almost felt as if I had conjured these things into existence. By paying so much attention, the world around me gave birth to these TV and movie adaptations. This did feel dreamlike in that sense. Cohesive, but dreamlike in terms of the way it moves around, it flows from thing to thing it it squashes and stretches the story and it's one of those things i i so clearly remember sitting on the floor in the living room inches away from the tv uh, uh paying such close attention to this and when i i think that when there was a part that had too much of the goofy songs or or it was too boring i was just urging it to get get on with it but it it had such an impact and then, of course, I could finally go back to school and talk to everybody about The Hobbit. I like it. Thank you for thank you for showing me this. This was a very fun time of him. I'm glad you I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you enjoyed the experience on one level or another. Oh yeah, it was fun to show this to you, and it was fun to watch it again. After I think I don't know that I've seen this since it was originally broadcast. Oh wow! So it was fun to come back to it, and. Weirdly, it didn't have that many surprises to me, except maybe my reaction to some of the art. It comported with my memories, by and large. I get you. Yeah. It's fun to see a, a good adaptation of Tolkien. Well, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. You're doing that thing again. What thing? That I said something and then you jump into the ending <laughs> and now I'm scared thing. Well, we will indeed be back in, in a couple of weeks. Valid. <laughs> okay. Bracing myself. Uh, in the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Uh, uh, you can find me most places as as by Matthew Porter. So you can go to bymatthewporter.com. I'm also by Matthew Porter on Twitter and by Matthew Porter on YouTube. And by the way, if you like hearing me ramble about movies, uh, go to by Matthew Porter on YouTube and you will find the Draft House Diary. I have an Alamo Draft House season pass, and I'm not afraid to use it. So I've been posting video reviews of each of my visits to an Alamo Draft House. Not just a review of the movie, but also a review of the food, a review of the theater itself, the experience. If you're interested in more information about movie theater subscription services, check out episode zero of that series, where I compare the Alamo version to the AMC Stubbs version. Uh, and Ian, where can people find you? I can be found online as Item Crafting on Twitter, as Item Crafting Live on Twitch, and at itemcrafting.com, as well as as Item Crafting on Etsy. And you can find the podcast uh, at immproject.com. That's where you will find links to all of our back episodes, also a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much uh, for supporting us there. You help keep the podcast going. You'll also find a link to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you there or from the contact page 
on immproject.com or on Twitter. On Twitter, we're immpcast. Oh, and immproject.com also has a link to our shop if you like t-shirts and coffee mugs and fun things like that. But most importantly, thank you very much for downloading. Thank you very much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.